Welcome to Launch Codes, the podcast about marketing operations, artificial intelligence, and more. Each week, you'll hear from experts as they share insights, stories, and strategies. Welcome to episode 14. On today's show, forget Sagittarius, this December belongs to Gemini. Webhook, Line, and Sinker in HubSpot's November update. A community question, make a marketable difference with executable campaigns. Our AI Navigator segment, seeing AI to I on transparency <laughs> guidelines. And Hot Takes, the AI Alliance aims to reboot the industry's power dynamics. And Martech's Toolrific Surge, over 2,000 tools introduced in the last six months. I'm your host, Joe Peters, and today I'm joined by Matt Tonkin. Matt, hey. what are you excited about today? Uh, more puns, always more puns, but uh, no, I, I'm excited to talk about uh, Gemini and uh, see see where Google's going with uh, its challenge to open AI. Yeah, there's a lot there. And let me give you a, a bit of a recap in terms of Google introducing Gemini and having some mixed reviews, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but I'm going to give a little bit of context and background here. Last week, Google introduced its new AI model, Gemini, and it's been a hot topic in the tech community, but not all the buzz has been positive. So Gemini comes in three versions, each tailored for specific use cases. The ultra version has shown exceptional performance, surpassing results on 30 of the 32 widely used benchmarks. But there's a little bit of controversiality here. Google's demo video, which was amazing and very, very impressive, titled Hands-On with Gemini, had a little bit of skepticism. There was a bit of a shell game being played there in terms of how the AI was responding in real time to inputs. And so we're going to have to see what the reality of this is. Yeah. A, a one uh, Harry Weber from TechCrunch said, in reality, it was a series of carefully tuned text prompts with still images, clearly selected and shortened to misrepresent what the interaction is really like. And then we got a, a tweet from Ethan Mollick, who is at Wharton, and is, uh, yeah, I have a lot of time for him. He, he His takes are pretty interesting. And so... so uh, just one thing from him, and then Matt, you and I can dive in. We really don't know anything about Gemini. Does it beat GPT-4 for real? If so, why by such a small amount? Two options. Gemini represents the best effort by Google, and the failure to cross GPT-4 shows limits of LLMs approaching. Google's goal, so the second being Google's goal was just to beat GPT-4. Three, whatever the secret sauce that OpenAI put into GPT-4 is so secret and so good that other labs cannot figure it out and can't catch up. Or four, Gemini represents Google's best revolt. There's effort, but their ability to train a good model is limited. Anyway, there, there's a lot here, but what are you, what's your take on this so far, Matt? 
Yeah, it was interesting um, because I watched the sort of demo, hands-on demo video. And while you're watching that, you know, it's very impressive. It seems like it's doing all this analyzing in real time with essentially zero additional prompts um, being generated on part of the user. And yeah, when it's when it's broken down, it's it, to me, it's not a demo video anymore. It's really a here's our future goal at some point in time, which is really disappointing because you have to be open about that. You can't just like make it seem like it's going to do a whole lot more than it wants. Um, yeah, so I was I was a little disappointed in that, and it's kind of a weird weird choice from Google. I don't know how that got um, like rubber stamped. Uh, to go out in that format, I guess it's a lot more impressive looking than, um, you know, having to iterate 12 prompts, even though that's the reality of where we're at. Obviously, there is a bit of expediency in demonstrating how it works. Mm -hmm. So it can be a bit important to show a flow and not have all the legs, especially in a short video. I, I get that. It could have been a little line of uh, in the video. This was sh this was edited for brevity. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. sometimes a little bit more transparency yeah. there could have gone a long way. And it and ultimately, it's not that big of a deal. It's just condensed what our experience is going to be. And I don't think that takes away from the impressive AI vision elements. No, definitely not. And you know. I still think it's definitely, and and the idea that it it barely beats GPT four, maybe that's true. But I don't I don't know if every single implementation of new AI has to be this huge leap forward. I think technology is much more incremental than people give it credit for. Um, so so I think you know it's okay if we start seeing companies laddering against each other rather than a giant leap forward every single new peace i think you're touching on something which is really important and that's the idea of is this incremental growth or is this exponential growth and if you're talking to the ai enthusiasts they're projecting this exponential growth curve which then is counter to incremental and i think that's where we're we're trying to understand our brains really are used, we're used to incremental growth. We didn't, we got an iPhone and then we didn't instantaneously get the iPhone 15 after the first gen came out. It's not, we had some increments along the way. We're used to moderate improvements in what we're doing. Some, some of them are earth shattering. When you change from your Motorola flip phone to an iPhone, it was a pretty big jump, right? But in this instance, in thinking about where things are at and what, how Gemini was has been delayed so many times now, mm -hmm. I really wonder where what's happening at Google. Like a, a company of 700 people is outperforming a company with unlimited resources, some of the best minds in this space, and... I find that really surprising. Yeah, and you get, there's always the difference between sort of that startup mentality, like get it done, get it done. And 
you know, somewhere with Google where a lot of their biggest moves in the last um, decade are uh, acquisitions more so than, you know, in-house. Not to say that Google's not doing anything in-house, but right, like there's a certain scale at that point, um, which I think can play into this and just the... um, uh, and maybe it's the wrong term, but bureaucracy of a larger company, not that OpenAI wouldn't have that at its scale as well. No, it's 100% the right term. It's bureaucracy and moving and shifting in the behemoth is is pretty hard. And DeepMind was an acquisition <laughs> that that didn't just come out of uh, of Google. So we have a lot to to figure out here. There's a lot more to the story. The AI wars are going to continue, and uh, it's going to be entertaining for us. Uh, and I think going to be exciting as a time to be in technology and what that means in terms of what we can do and and the sort of limitless potential that we can see in our future. But let's switch gears here a little bit, Matt, and move over to the HubSpot November release <laughs> updates. And there's a few things here. So it, HubSpot released its November notes and that included over 40 updates across their hubs, including marketing, CMS, service sales, and more. Here are a few of the highlights. Daily record enrollment limit for workflows and sandboxes. So they implemented a daily record enrollment limit for workflows and sandboxes. <laughs> you got a bullet there. Uh, sandbox users can enroll up to 100,000 records per sandbox account per day. And before this change, sandbox users could enroll an unlimited number of records per sandbox a day, which is kind of strange, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Let me cover the other two as well. Uh, anomaly monitoring on property updates. And that, it, 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 that is in regards to the update volume across the CRM using HubSpot AI. This includes a new section on data quality command center that monitors properties and takes actions. And users will also have the ability to subscribe themselves and other users to notifications triggered by anomaly issues. And then the last area is on webhook triggers and workflows. And so the webhook triggers provide you with the flexibility to pull data in from your third-party systems apps in order to trigger workflows directly in HubSpot on the third-party data. Being able to trigger from a webhook will solve a variety of automation use cases for you to automate from your third-party data. Now, Matt, decode some of this for us. Yeah. um, I mean, first and foremost, I think the daily record uh, enrollment limit uh, for sandboxes, that's... That's just HubSpot trying to limit the amount of backend processing they have to do. But also, if you were running over 100,000 people through workflows on your sandbox, maybe your testing processes should be reviewed. I get maybe some situations where you need to do large-scale testing to see if there's any, you know, fault points based on throttling or anything like that. Right. Um, but I, I doubt this is going to affect most people unless you have, you know, massive data movements that you're trying to test against um i love the anonymity modeling monitoring um and the reason why is as a mops person usually when something's broken it's kind of like a a little 
a little leak in a pipe in a house and you don't notice it until there's a big water spot and someone points it out to you. Usually that's in the form of a, you know, a salesperson or someone saying, Hey, what's with all of this? And by the time you get to it, you know, you've got to dig back a little bit. So I like the idea of something active monitoring and, you know, seeing weird things happening in data before, you know, it gets out of control and you can remediate that a lot faster. So I do like that. Um, the webhook triggers is an interesting one. I think it, it moves HubSpot a bit closer to some of the more customizable, um, and integratable, uh, mobs platforms like Marketo, for instance, where, you know, by doing this, we can directly trigger a process from say a, a custom web app or a, you know, a, an application that a company has its own, its own portal, its own login. Um, whereas before you would need to kind of do some convoluted processes to, you know, update data and then off of that data trigger things, this can be just a direct, a direct triggering mechanism. So it, it definitely opens up a lot more, I think for, uh, companies with their own, um, custom developers, it allows you to do a lot more within your own, um, your own platform. So I think this is a, a win for HubSpot. Yeah, that's the one thing that we keep on seeing from HubSpot is they're not taking their foot off the gra a gas at all in terms of innovations and new feature sets that they yeah. keep on adding to the platform. I, I will say with HubSpot, and I maybe mentioned this after we went to Inbound, that sometimes they like to announce, make announcements that are a little underwhelming, but in volume. Um, so I think that's true at the 40. I think we we found some three three pretty good ones here. There were a few other interesting ones, but I think sometimes the announcements can be more for volume than quality. That's fine. That's fine. We're used to all these iOS updates telling us about right. <laughs> we, we're not going to use anyway. But there are edge cases and fringe cases that if this is important to you, you're going to uh, want to have a deeper dive into it. And so maybe what we could do is in, in the show notes, we can put a reference to that release so you can dive deeper if you really need to. All right, let's move into our community question. And thanks to the marketingops.com community for today's question. And what we have here is, is anyone using executable campaigns? We have not used them. Well, we have some use cases where they can be of value, like lead lifecycle management and lead scoring. What is the best practice setup? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and first off, this is a very Marketo-centric question, but for anyone that doesn't know, um, executable campaigns were essentially an update to Marketo's request-a-campaign process, where you can, from another campaign or via API or whatever the case, request a campaign workflow to run. Uh, the great thing about executable campaigns and why it's a step up on that is they execute in series or in, yeah, in series, not in parallel. And for anyone that doesn't understand that picture, you know, running through a line item on a list. And if you're calling a campaign, whether it's re uh, executable or requesting, um, that starts to run. So with an executable campaign, it needs to finish before the next step in the process starts. For a requestable campaign, uh, it just starts running and then whatever the next step in the process continues. What happens here is you have all these different processes happening um, at the same time and you kind of have to start throwing in wait steps and all of these issues. Executable campaign solves that. So that's where, you know, if you need to have something happen before something else, 
executable campaigns are your friend. The other big benefit is that they um, pull in token and data from the parent campaign. So whatever called it, that program, you can use your token values from it uh, and run it in the executable campaign wherever it's located, allows you to decentral or to centralize a lot of processes that way. Um, don't get carried away with these types of things uh, just because you have the option. There's always find the best solution, but yes, executable campaigns, that's for, you know, processes you need to happen in a certain order and consistently. Uh, so that's sort of your best practice setup. All right. Well, that's, that's a great question. And thanks Matt for clarifying that today. All right. Our next section in our new segment, for those of you that uh, maybe missed the last couple of segments is AI navigators. And each week we're going to take a little look at something that's happening in terms of practical use and impact for our colleagues in MOPS as it pertains to AI and the influence and um, and impact that it can have. So this week we have six best practices for AI transparency and marketing, and this comes from HubSpot. So we want to give a little bit of a call out to them. We've been talking about AI principles and guidelines on the show the last couple of weeks. And last week, HubSpot, probably because they were listening to launch codes, released a series of best practices for AI transparency themselves. And there's a couple of points here. AI transparency is the is the practice and principle of making AI systems understandable and interpretable to humans. And transparency in AI isn't just about technology. It's aligning AI goals with organizational value, ensuring stakeholder interests are met, and building a culture of openness and accountability. And that's a direct quote from the HubSpot article. And in the article, they outlined six best practices. I'm just going to quickly run through the the titles here of their six best practices, and then you and I can dive in, Matt. But first they say, define and align AI goals. Second, choose the right methods for transparency. Third, prioritize transparency in AI lifecycle. Four, continuous monitoring and adaptation. Five, engage a spectrum of perspectives. And six, foster a transparent organizational culture. So there's a lot here, and what we we love this pylon in in terms of if there are more people talking about this, it, it, we we recognize that it's an essential time for organizations to start to think through things. So, what is your first impressions of this, Matt? Yeah, and this might be a little nitpicky, but I think one of the things that stands out to me is I would have you know number six there foster a transparent organizational culture around that i'd have that much higher in the list uh probably right after define your goals i think that you know setting the tone for an organization and how everyone's using it not i don't want to say secretive but being conscious of being open with what you're doing and how you're doing it um both that's great for like just learning within the organization but avoiding those conflict of interests i think i think that needs to be higher up uh, on this list for me or maybe it's something that kind of spans all of them mm-hmm. yeah, like, and the 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 thing is transparent organizational culture isn't something that happens overnight mm-hmm. you either kind of espouse yeah. that value or you don't and this 
making a number six, I, I agree, is kind of wonky when maybe it could be one of those things that help lead to this. But being transparent culturally in terms of what's happening with AI is really important today. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's your take on defining and aligning AI goals? Because I, I feel like you have to be so broad when you're aligning your goals and then there's such for individual use cases, right? You almost need tiers of aligning your goals. I think what becomes a no-brainer, if there is a use case that aligns with what's happening today, then, and what your mission is, well, then that becomes a no-brainer, okay? But, I think when we start to look at the, the the macro AI connecting to mission and values, I think the key piece there is the values and understanding the alignment between your organizational values. And, you know, we talked about this, I think, last week where they're kind of, a, I, I, th I think there are three types of ways of that organizations can look at AI use. One, it can be kind of uh, open, do whatever you'd like, try and see what you can do. Let's find ways to work better, more efficient, do cool stuff. <laughs> so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is I want to approve every single use case before it's executed or even attempted. And then there's there's a huge mm -hmm. uh, span in between, and so your value alignment is going to be is going to be tied to your what your tolerance for risk is, <laughs> and maybe that's where we get into the challenges with Google with hundred thousand people. Their tolerance for risk is <laughs> maybe right. not the same as seven hundred people. But when we but when we look at this, I think in in. I actually really strongly believe that there are organizations that there's so much at stake that mm. they shouldn't just be, they couldn't risk allowing people just to have free reign and do what they want. So I think there's, there's some connectivity there to what your, what your values are in, as an organization and what the risk benefit reward is. I think that's another thing that we're going to talk about in, in, in future weeks, but this idea of if, you know, we're going to have risks declining over time, and we're going to have benefits increasing over time. And if when those benefits transverse that risk, mm. that risk curve, and we move, we have that tipping point where we move into the benefits greatly starting to greatly exceed the risk, that's going to be a whole new era for organizations because the use cases are going to be so impactful that you can't ignore it. But we're just still curving up on what we're seeing as the benefits and, and impacts that AI can have. I, I helping you write an email isn't enough. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's not it. But and, and I and I'm and I'm only being a little bit um facetious in, in that 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 I we can do so much more than that, but that's not gonna make you transform your organization right. overnight. It's gotta be some of uh, some greater impact, higher use cases. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're, if you're in that high risk category, you don't need to maybe be the front runner, be who's doing all this new 
amazing stuff with AI. It, you can sit back and see how other companies approach this, uh, you know, play it a bit safe, um, and with less risk, yeah, have some fun and, uh, you know, see what you can do. Or what you, I think another smart way is you, you create a mini lab. If you're a large organization, you have the resources to sign a few people to an AI lab where they can be presented with different use cases to kind of experiment and try around, but they actually understand the parameters around it and, and walls that they need to set up. So nothing, nothing uh, crazy or bad takes place. So anyway, I, I, I appreciate this pile on that we're seeing that these conversations are really important. The, the changes and transformations are coming and you need to start to think through this and ultimately the more transparent you are with it the greater i think the return is going to be because you could have a greater engagement with your with your teams and employees on what this can do all right well let's move into our sponsorship thank you period so our th thanks this week to our friends at NAC for Sponsoring today's episode, NAC is the no-code platform that allows you to build campaigns in minutes. Get more engagement in less time with their simple but sophisticated email builder. Visit NAC.com to learn more. That's K-N-A-K.com. All right, now let's move into our hot takes segment. And I like this next one in the theme of piling on. But we have IBM, Meta, and 50 other organizations launch an alliance to challenge dominant AI players. And this includes on the list uh, Intel, Sony Group, Dell, Meta, as well as some universities like Yale, Cornell, Dartmouth, and, um, and then uh, Stability AI is in there as well. And so this alliance is seen as a move to challenge the dominance of OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon in the AI space. And the group is working around a number of broad categories, including creation of common frameworks for evaluating the strength of AI algorithms, devotion of capital to AI research funds, and collaboration on open source models. Matt, what's your thoughts here? Yeah, it's uh, for me, kind of... Um resonates with a sort of a net neutrality feel right the the idea of we can't just let one or two huge companies control everything and how we do this um but at the same time there uh you know those names on this uh organization list aren't mom and pop shops <laughs> they're they're huge organizations what what surprises me here maybe with the exception of meta but the others have not made huge strides in AI, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe they they have some secret things that are happening. Uh, you know, Intel's on this list, but it's not NVIDIA on this list. Um, IBM, Sony, and Dell. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I'm in Austin this week. I get off the uh, airplane and walking through the airport, um, to exit, there are all these Dell AI ads. So I, I, I'd never seen that before. Yeah. They may, maybe they're doing something. I'm, I'm not sure, but it was it was interesting just not being exposed. I, I haven't 
heard a lot of these these organizations making big strides uh, in the at least in the generative AI space. Yeah, it's interesting. So they're they're doing it, but to your point, like, is this? Oh, we're we're behind. So let's team up and see if we can, you know, <laughs> slow down the people ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the other part of this is having a multitude of perspectives in sort of flagging or calling out challenges that we have is really important because we're going to be moving fast and we have to rely on these other parties to say, hey, look over here for a little bit because there may be something that we don't like what the next few steps forward are going to mean. All right. Let's move on to our second hot take. Over 2,000 new MarTech tools were introduced in the last six months. And this is by Scott Brinker, who uh, I have a lot of time and respect for. Uh, he had a great presentation at Mofsapalooza early in November that I really, really loved. And he has this crazy map, right? <laughs> map that kind of has... It, it ended up be it started off as a logo for everything, I think, in 2011. Yeah. And now I think it's a pixel, <laughs> a colored pixel for everything because there's so many MarTech solutions in the ecosystem. And we have a, a number here at 13,080 on his map. Wow. And I, that's an 18.5% jump in the last six months. And here's an interesting quote. Yeah, the truth is you can build an empire with all the genide AI that has been surfacing. And by an empire, I mean, of course, a business. And that's uh, Franz Rizma of Marchek tribe. It, this, so I think it's pretty clear that generative AI is at the foundation or root of this. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are your thoughts on this? It's funny because, you know, to your point of that, when it was the logos and then it was a few hundred logos and then a few thousand, um, I always remember the comments being, at some point, this is going to plateau. There's going to be consolidation. Um, and I feel like maybe at one point it didn't plateau, but it sort of, the, it slowed a little and then boom, now it's just so many. And as, you know, a consultant helping clients make decisions on specifically what products to choose it's a little terrifying because no one can understand 13,000 uh you know maybe we maybe we create an AI for that show uh, but let's maybe we don't maybe we don't broadcast that one that's our idea <laughs> well I I'm gonna say if if what I've seen happen is there's innovations made off these platforms whether it's GPT 3.5 or 4 and then there are going to be innovations that come out that are just going to kill companies overnight uh, where, you know, the custom GPT, obviously there were a lot of companies that were building wrappers to kind of give you that mm -hmm. kind of experience that a custom GPT was. Once that's released, then that company is no longer viable. So I don't, I don't think that we're going to have, like, I, I feel like it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride in terms of the additions and subtractions. I think there'll be some pretty interesting data over the next year on that. And sure, we're going to see more, 
But I think there's it's going to be interesting to see what that delta is between the additions and the subtractions. Hmm. And how many how many additions are subtracted before we even get to a one year where he renews this, right? Like how fast is that turnover? And let's let's just also be honest. Subtractions don't happen overnight either, right? It's not like someone the the next day that they saw a custom GPT, they'd build a solution around it. They just decide to close up shop and announce that. Usually it's a slow and gradual decline. Right. It's what would be interesting if we could you know, put on this map is the uh, economic performance of each of these companies, right? Yeah. And and then we'd have some interesting stories on the ebbs and flows here, but I think it's going to be pretty dynamic over the next year. All right. Let's move into our final segment of the day, our pairing segment. So this week we have... Uh, one of, uh, it's on, I can't believe that I'm already here and that I've gone back to the well to, uh, my, one of my favorite bands, uh, for a new song, but the smile, which is the a side project of a couple of, uh, Radiohead members, including Tom <laughs> York, they released a single called wall of eyes. And that's what we're going to listen to today. And I do think it really, it was a no-brainer to pick them this week because I feel after seeing that Gemini <laughs> video, the idea of a wall of eyes watching us all the time is really something for us to to really think through. So it's a, it's a great track from a great band, uh, some blue vinyl on my Christmas wish list. Hopefully, it arrives in in January when it's uh, when the when it's uh, the album officially comes out. But great new music. And for those of you uh, who are, are new to Launch Codes, you you hear a little bit of the music at the beginning of the show, and then we give you a nice little segment at the end of the show so you can see, hear, and listen, and um, hop all over to your favorite streaming platforms. Uh, to listen a, a, a little deeper if you'd like. But that's that's it for our music this week. Matt, what do you have in terms of our uh, of a beverage this week or All something right. different? I don't know. You, you, I, this it, is a surprise for me. So <laughs> it is a beverage this week. So what we're going with this week, so it's from a brewery called uh, Flying Monkey, and that's in Barrie, Ontario. It's called Psychedelic Puzzle Factory. So yeah, their, their, for, cans are yeah, their cans are amazing. And uh, for anyone not watching this, I don't even know how to describe it if you're just listening, but it's like colorful, colorful beer can acid trip. Yeah. And, and they have, (laughs) so flying monkeys, this is sort of there when, you know, the craft beer craze sort of kicked off. You had all these companies doing crazy cans, crazy names, pun names, whatever the case to really, I guess, stand out. Um, and, and Flying Monkey, I feel like, has kind of kept doing that even while a lot of other brands are sort of, you know, t- going back to a more traditional look. And I think that just, you know, it, it's great beer, but it just reminds me of how how you want to stand out in, you know, 13,000 new marking ops apps, right? It's that gimmicky maybe, how do you, 
how do you stand out? And not to say it's gimmicky for Flying Monkey, it's sort of their their thing now, and I think they did it better than the rest. Um, but that that's why I chose the spear. Awesome. Well, I, I've actually had the chance to have a couple of their beers in the past, and it's uh, if you if you have a if it ever comes across your way, you're not going to go wrong with the Flying Monkey, even if it's just to embrace the art. It's great. There's so many little details on the can. It's uh, I really do love the designs. Yeah, it's amazing. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. And thanks to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn or by joining our newsletter, also called Launch Codes, using the link in the description. And as always, thanks, Mom, for watching. See you next week. Thank you.